Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast, episode 25, titled Facebook, Digital Tribes, Inspiration, Sanity, and Footnotes. (laughs) This is an episode where we are going to spend some time uh, responding to your questions. So for those of you who sent questions in, Thank you for sending them, and hopefully together today we will be able to think about the questions that you've asked and maybe arrive at more helpful questions or more uh, helpful insights and perspectives as we think through the questions that so many of us are asking. One thing before we get to your questions, I want to remind you, as I did on our last episode, that on March 13th through the 22nd, 2019, I am uh, co-leading a pilgrimage to Israel and Palestine, Palestine, sorry, alongside my good friend, Kent Dobson. Kent studied there for five years. He studied biblical geography. Uh, it was one of, I think, the master's degrees he has. I think he has two. Um, and, and just has a brilliant understanding of the land and is able to use the geography to help us understand more about the roots of our faith. And so if you are interested in joining with us, you can email me, michael at michael-hidalgo.com. You can share your contact info with me, your name, your mailing address and phone number. And uh, if you can do that before November 2nd, that would be incredibly helpful. Uh, You don't have to live in Denver to be a part of this trip, but if you email me, I will follow up with all of the details Uh, that you need and do my best to answer any questions that you may have about the trip. With that said, however, today we're going to talk about the questions that many of you have already sent in and uh, we'll work our way through responding. So first question comes from Dale. He says, you've mentioned Facebook in your Sunday teachings. And when you do, it's mostly from a negative perspective. Care to elaborate? Well, yes, I do care to elaborate uh, because in the times that I have commented on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or social media, whatever, uh, whatever avenue you're using there, is when I do comment on it in a sermon, there's almost always a collective groan from the audience. It is somehow Facebook's become like a picture of the shadow side of us as humans. And as a matter of fact, I don't know anybody who when Facebook is mentioned immediately say things like, oh, I love Facebook. I'm on it all the time. It it is the best method for communicating to people that you love. This is a wonderful way to share my thoughts and my beliefs and my opinions. No, of course we don't say that. Facebook has devolved into perhaps the poorest form and route for communicating that we currently have. Like, I don't know uh, that there's any one reason for this, but I'll um, m- maybe give some reflections on why I often come at Facebook from a negative perspective. Um, first, it's important to remember that anytime a new technology is introduced to us, there is always a bit of a break-in period. And uh, whenever new technology is introduced to us, broadly speaking, like something like Facebook or the internet, it doesn't come with an owner's manual. And so we see this actually, if we look back in history at the onset of the industrial revolution, you had um, villages, civilizations, towns, however you want to say it, um, who for centuries, they lived in such a way where they would cooperate with one another. 
And so you had maybe like a butcher, then you had a gardener or a farmer, you had textile people, you had all different individuals who, or different families who would do something different. And then they would buy and sell and trade living in this community. And the community was really centered around their work. And it was a work that provided something for them and provided something for others. So then you have the industrial revolution come through and now you have this new technology. You have the rise of the machines for the first time ever. There was a group called the Luddites. And it's interesting to note, they were opposed to the industrial revolution, not because they were anti-technology, but because they said, hey, listen, you, this is going to lead to the breakdown of community and it's actually going to diminish the quality of the goods that are produced. You can't mass produce something and have the same quality as something that's handmade uh, by a family that's been doing this for generations. And what was interesting is Luddite, for the most part now, if someone says you're Luddite, it's not a compliment. And yet the Luddites were right. Because in that day and age, in that time frame, primarily the person who was working outside the home was the father. And when I say outside the home, they weren't getting in their car and going anywhere. They were going out to the field. They were uh, taking care of their cattle. They were um, going out and collecting whatever materials needed for whatever they were going to build. And, and so they would often, the dads would take their sons with them. And then the one who really ran the household were, were the moms, the women, because they would stay home and make sure they were doing inventory. They were making sure you had all the supplies that you needed, making sure that everything was set and ready to go for the day and week ahead. And so once you had the industrial revolution, the sons weren't leaving in the morning with the dads anymore because the dads were in fact at that point having to go to some factory and work. And they weren't the ones teaching their sons the family trade anymore. So you had the breakdown of that relationship. And now the sons were home with the moms and the, and the daughters and they weren't having to do the work they once did because now they were having to go to stores to buy it. And so now you have moms at home with twice as many kids and they're not able to get the work done and to teach their kids what their kids are supposed to know. So now you have the creation of schools and they start sending their kids away to schools. And now the mom is isolated at home. The father's isolated at work and the kids are at school. I mean, just over and over and over. It led to, in fact, a breakdown of community. It did compromise the quality of goods, which is what the Luddites pointed out. Uh, and in that day and age, it was revolutionary. However, for us today, it's, it's normal. It's just what you do. It's the way things are. And now we're on like the horizon or maybe just past the horizon of the information age, the information revolution, we might call it. We, and here's the trick. As Pete Holmes, one of my favorite comedians says, we have more information than ever and we're not a lick smarter for it. We, we don't have to wonder anymore. We just know because we have Google on our smartphones. We can get more things done and yet I never talk to people who are less busy. In fact, we can get more things done faster and yet we seem to have less time. We have the capacity to not miss anything, yet we seem to miss what's right in front of us and often we don't see anything. We are more connected than ever and research shows we're more lonely than ever. We have not yet learned how to live within this new reality and Facebook is included in that. And I start there because I don't think that Facebook is bad or evil or needs to be destroyed. It's not going away. 
I mean, at some point down the road, maybe, but not for a long time. And in fact, I don't think that getting rid of Facebook will actually do much for us because Facebook is about users and humans. Facebook is about you and me. And maybe that's the best place to start with us because Facebook has a way of revealing things about human beings and the human condition. In 2012, uh, in an article published by The Atlantic, they uh, talked about loneliness in Facebook. And it suggested that we in the West have become more lonely with each passing decade. And this for many was the draw of social media. The idea being that if I am isolated or I am lonely, I now have the power to connect with others. The problem, of course, is we are not really connecting. See, many of us only show our best selves. It's a carefully curated representation of our lives. Like someone will post this beautiful family picture and it just seems to be this random candid moment of everyone laughing together, parents and kids, and everyone looks great and somehow they all match. And what we don't know is that there was like 462 pictures taken and there was three breakdowns with the kids and the spouses were arguing, but we show the one picture and say, I love my family. I'm sure you do love your family, but what we're viewing is not real. It's one out of 462 pictures. This is why there's some sociologists that refer to our Facebook profiles or our social media profiles as a second self. Second self. It's actually a person or a self that doesn't actually exist in the real world. And it's possible that the more we engage in posting a self that is not real, we only further our loneliness because somehow we believe if we post a good self, people will want to be with us and that will solve our loneliness. But just under the surface, we know they're not really connecting with us. They're connecting with this other person. Or it works the other way. Research has shown that when you look at somebody's life, someone that you're connected to, and it looks amazing, you become more depressed. And the more depressed you come, the more isolated you become, and the more lonely you become. I mean, think about like even what we want for our posts. If you put a post on Facebook, what do you want for your post? Likes, you want likes. And now you have what, like like and love and laughter and what all these other different ways you can interact with people's posts. How many times have you been with friends and at the same time pulled out your phone and decided that you were going to check uh, to see how many likes your last Facebook post got? We're with people, yet we're isolated. We're connected, but we're disconnected from flesh and blood in front of us. And then what about those who post about having a bad day or talk about like, you know, wanting to be more honest? I mean, that does happen. However, there's something interesting that I often see with this too. It's not just people sharing about their struggle or struggles, but also how others are to blame for their struggles. Like a person goes to a restaurant and has a poor experience or a person's car breaks down on a busy highway. You have a bad day at work. There's a difficulty of parenting. And notice what happens with many of these posts. We blame those who caused the problem. 
And so we can't just have a bad experience at a restaurant. There's this really stupid server who was so slow and didn't know the menu or the chef was terrible or there was a family and they sat there the whole time, even though their baby was crying, it completely ruined, no, ruined the ambiance. Or you have the staff who was really stuck up or your car breaks down on the highway and you have to talk about all of the jerks who didn't stop for you in the 45 minutes that you waited for a tow truck because they don't care. Or how about like, when we talk about work, we have to talk about like Tiffany and how she's so obnoxious. It's blame. It's a refusal to own our stuff. More than that, there's something subtler here. Entitlement. So often people take to Facebook to rail against what people did or didn't do to make their life miserable. Instead of just saying, I had a difficult experience, there has to be a blame because we believe we are, we are above having to have these problems and these struggles and these miserable experiences. And then when someone blames everyone else, the comments that follow are typically things like, oh, how awful. And they, whoever caused the problem, are terrible and self-centered. You, whoever posted, are the best. Don't let the bastards grind you down. And this supports the attitude of the person who posts on Facebook and only serves to strengthen their attitude and their way of seeing the world. And it tells us that our way of seeing the world and experiencing life is good and healthy and sure. And what happens if you challenge that way of seeing the world? Well, let me just ask you this question. How well do disagreements go on Facebook? Now you're probably thinking, well, not good. Well, good, on that we agree. Yet have you noticed that it seems that the most incendiary posts, the ones that will no doubt attract the most disagreements are the very ones that get the most traction? And in a world that is about how many likes you can get, well, then let's be controversial. And when someone disagrees, give them a verbal smackdown. This continues to happen because the premise of Facebook, by the way, the premise of Facebook is about uh, a technology, a website giving everybody a platform, which means Facebook is about speaking, not about listening. We are there to post. We are there to share. We're there to announce. We're there to communicate. And the expectation is that our friends will listen to us. Facebook gives everyone a platform, which means it's first and foremost about talking, not listening. And when someone interrupts us, we talk louder. It's possible that Facebook actually works against one of the most fundamental things for healthy relationships, and that is listening. We do not know how to listen well. Let me repeat that. We do not know how to listen well. And maybe it's not Facebook per se, but what Facebook reveals about us as human beings that's so troubling. I mean, if we have a crappy piece of furniture, we don't blame the tools. We're not like, man, you know what? They should not have used that particular Phillips head screwdriver. No, if we have crappy furniture, we ask questions about the builder. And so maybe when it comes to Facebook, it would be helpful to ask questions of ourselves. It may help when we see our real life friends posting all sorts of stuff that seems to be way out there, maybe reaching out to them and sitting face to face with them to see how they are. It may be helpful to move beyond Facebook toward one another in real 
relationships. And maybe if we become better and healthier in our real human relationships, uh, we might actually see Facebook become something better. Second question. What do you think is causing such a divide in our country? Sarah sent this in. Um, (laughs) This is a big question. Uh, So let me say this first. I don't believe that the 2016 election is the cause of the division. I don't believe Donald Trump is the cause of the division. I don't believe Hillary Clinton is the cause of the division. I don't believe the media or the right or the left or the Democrats or the Republicans, uh, the argument over Michael Jordan and LeBron, whatever. Like, I don't believe any one of those things is the cause of the division. I think uh, the 2016 will go down in history as exposing what has long been a division that has been there for a long time. I actually spoke about this um, on a previous episode titled This and or That. I think it was episode 21. Uh, Anyway, in response to the question, let me give some ideas. And I might, yeah, I I don't know how this will go, but let me give some ideas. Um, I think what's causing the divide, and there's a lot of things, but I think we've been given and it kind of started in the, um, in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s. We've been given the ability to get into our tailored echo chambers with our digital, digital tribes. Meaning, we now have 24-hour news. And news, by the way, that is anything but fair and balanced. News that has gone on record as saying we represent the right. News that has gone on record as saying we represent the left. Uh, And you can get that 24 hours a day, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, whatever it is, 24 hours a day, nonstop. And at some point, there's actually not enough things to report on. So now you have people giving opinion and the people who are giving opinion are biased and slanted. And so we drink this in, we have all sorts of news apps on our phone and we can just continually take a steady diet of uh, one perspective. Then you have algorithms, which are, Um, equations, basically, that are put into websites to track what you're looking at and reading and taking in so that different websites can send you what they think you want. So go check your Facebook feed. I know we just talked about Facebook. Go check your Facebook feed. And if most of what you're getting is religious in nature, we'll say, chances are you are frequenting some sort of uh, religious websites, Christianity Today or something like that. And you're also clicking on in Facebook all sorts of religious stuff. If everything you're looking at is primarily uh, left-leaning or primarily right-leaning, it will be indicative of where you are. By the way, if, if like what you're looking at or what's coming up in your Facebook feed is like pictures of cute kittens, you're doing just fine. Um, you can get Google alerts now. Google will send you the news that you tell them you want. Uh, everything is about what we want to hear and what we want to see. And few things actually challenge our thinking anymore. And this is all by our own choosing. And what I've seen is that when somebody or something does challenge our ideas, we uh, have a tendency to write them off pretty quickly as stupid. They're idiots. How can they think that way? I will never understand dot, dot, dot. And all of these quick responses may only point um, to the lack of any real confidence that we have in our beliefs. And it's possible that we are insecure in our beliefs because we haven't taken any real time listening to the other viewpoints. 
And if we take the time to listen to other viewpoints, uh, it has the power to broaden our thinking, to challenge our thinking, to sharpen our understanding. That if we listen to conservatives and we listen to liberals speak about the global economy, we're actually going to get a broader understanding of the global economy and how people view it in the United States. And then we're able to form a more, uh, I would say a stronger viewpoint and able to develop a broader understanding. But we often don't do that. Instead, we, we, we kind of isolate ourselves with our little tribe. Dallas Willard actually spoke about this in his book in the 90s, a book titled The Divine Conspiracy. And um, he has a section in there that's called uh, Smothered in Slogans and how this has an effect on the human psyche. And, and we all, by the way, we all do this to one level or another. I mean, think about the way people talk about sports teams and they use the collective we Yet we had a really tough loss last night as though somehow like, we're on the floor playing with them. Uh, you have brands, corporate branding, um, Apple versus Samsung uh, and the, the brand loyalty that people have. We have, of course, partisan politics. You have shoes, religion, and not just religion, but all of the sub-denominations and on it goes. And we're smothered in all of this. But I wonder, like, what about just being human. We have so affiliated with inhuman things, it stands to reason we've lost our deepest identity, which is humans. It's no wonder, by the way, that we struggle to connect. When we label ourselves as this, then what fellowship do we have with that? And we're labeling ourselves with all sorts of inhuman things. And when I think about this whole division in this question, I think the thing that breaks my heart the most is how people who identify as Christians are smack in the middle of this and furthering the division. It's like we're completely unaware of the fact that Jesus in John 17 prayed for the church to be one. And for some reason, we feel the constant need to divide people up, which is the worst form of religion. Jesus, by the way, seemed to include everybody. And perhaps it's time for all of us to learn that lest we become more like the Pharisees and the self-righteous that Jesus seemed to preach against. And I think we do need to begin with ourselves. I mean, so often we, we talk as though the problem is them or those people or that party. And there's so much arrogance in our culture today about us being right and them being wrong. It's a hubris that drips off the words of so many. We seem to think that we have arrived. Worse than that, we forget that we actually have been on a journey and that we are all in process. I am only here because those who were a little bit further down the road loved me, they were patient with me, they challenged me, and they invited me forward. That's true right up to this present moment. To pretend then that I am in no way a part of the problem is foolish and blind and quite frankly, arrogant. And by the way, arrogance is both foolish and blinding. So that was redundant. But it's, it's helpful to begin by saying, how have I or how am I contributing to the division? And really spending time with that question. Maybe that's a more helpful question to ask than what's causing the division is how am I causing the division. 
Maybe if you haven't ever read news from another source um, that represents a different political slant than, than the one you typically read, go read that. Um, invite someone with whom you disagree on a myriad of issues to lunch, and then don't talk about the issues. Just enjoy being friends. Remind yourself that they are human. They're not Democrat. They're not Republican, first and foremost. They're human. And just enjoy some time with them. Um, Rather than make the assumption that they need us, what if you begin asking, like, how is it that we need them? I think we need to seek to understand before being understood. And I think we need to work on loving, just good old, pure, like old-fashioned loving people. Um, Jesus prayed that we would be one even as he and the Father are one. And it's interesting that we in the Christian tradition talk about the Trinity, God is three, but one. And uh, I believe it's Miroslav Volf talks about how this oneness of God that exists in unity is the result of mutual, divine, eternal, self-giving love that each person in the Godhead, each person of the Trinity is continually giving to the other two nonstop love, love, love. And I think we're so in a culture that when we're out there trying to get our own news, we end up taking a lot more than we are giving. Uh, okay. Some, that's, yeah, I think that's it. Um, let's see here. Sam, what did he say? I have heard you say a couple of different times that you've been accused of throwing away the Bible. What do you say to people who accuse you of that? Okay, yes. So I've been accused of throwing away the Bible. What do I say when someone accuses me of throwing away the Bible? Um, the short answer is I don't say anything. Uh, I don't. And, and I don't say anything because it's not true. Um, but what I've quickly learned is that when someone levels an accusation of any sort and it's not true, arguing your point rarely works to change their mind. And here's why I say that. If someone accuses you of something, they are telling you that they have already come to a conclusion about you or about your actions or about something you've done. And so in this situation, the accusation is you have thrown the Bible away. Um, and they are communicating to me what they believe to be true about me, which means they have an idea of what it means to not throw the Bible away. And they believe I have violated that idea and until I come back to their understanding of fidelity to the Bible, they will stand by their accusations uh, of me. And so I've stopped responding um, because I've just, uh, I've, uh, I've figured out over the years, it's not helpful. Um, and I've been accused of this for a long time. And I just figured it's, it's really not helpful to respond directly to that. Um, and here are some of the reasons, I guess I would say that. I would say this first, um, I'm eternally grateful to the people who introduced me to the Bible from a very young age. And I've said this before, um, but I truly am. And it is in part um, that introduction to the Bible. That is in part what led me to give my life to studying that book and communicating what I'm learning about it. Um, but the commitment of so many people that I dearly love um, have also helped me to see how they hold the Bible. Uh, in their words, they say it's the, quote, authoritative word of God, end quote. Um, I've heard other people say it's the final authority. Um, and so those are very 
very strong and intense words. And those who speak them hold to those words tenaciously. And so when one thinks like this, what I've learned is it can lead them to make quick accusations uh, against those who don't line up with what they believe the Bible to be saying. And so when they say you've thrown the Bible away in their minds, I or anyone else, we're disagreeing with God. And so when I say I don't respond, it's because for some who say this, what they're saying is like, you are disagreeing with God. And by the way, they believe that they have the direct line to what God really actually believes on whatever issue it is that has caused them to say this in the first place. Now you may be thinking, you're not disagreeing with God. You're, dis- you're disagreeing with their particular interpretation of the Bible. And I would say, yes, you have a point. Uh, but separating those two things is far more difficult uh, than you might think. Um, over the years, I've heard from the platforms, I've heard, I've read in books, I've, I've heard it on the radio. One of my guilty pleasures, by the way, is listening to preachers on the radio. Um, don't argue with me or don't get mad at me. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. But they're not. All of us, anytime we're talking about the Bible, all of us are telling others what we believe the Bible to be saying, not what the Bible says. And it's important to remember that if we went back 1,000 years and we interpreted the Bible the way we do now, we very well might be burned at the stake or at the very least uh, excommunicated from the church. And and so there's been this evolving way of interpreting the Bible with each um, new age, new epoch, however you want to say it. Um, But it's really hard for people who've been reared in an environment told this is the authoritative word of God, this is the final authority, to to undo those two things, to disconnect those two things. Uh, It's helpful to remember, I guess, the Bible is words. Um, Words that were written down by human beings over the course of the centuries. And one part of the Christian tradition is to speak about the inspiration of these words, that these words are God-breathed, they're inspired, they're living, they're alive, they're dynamic. There's a lot of ways to say it. And by the way, I agree with this idea. uh, And there's much to say about what inspiration means exactly. But suffice to say, there's something breathing, we can say it that way. There's something breathing in the written words. And as much as we want to talk about that, what the Bible definitively calls the word of God is the answer to every Sunday school question, Jesus. Jesus is the face of God. Jesus is the divine word in human form. And I point this out because when someone accuses me of throwing away the Bible, I can hear them And I can know that many people say this to me from a place of concern, not a place of anger. Uh, What I find interesting is that Jesus is considered the ultimate revelation of God to us as humans, not the Bible. And I think this ought to teach us something. Uh, We all know that words fail at times. And so I could argue against the accusers or return volley with some sort of shot at them Uh, or I could accuse them back, but the presence of Jesus teaches me all the words I could summon won't do the trick. If we think about any time that we've changed our minds, any time we've learned something new, really learned something, is rarely by reading and usually by experience. And so what I've come to understand is that the real work 
is actually living in such a way where my life reflects not only that I have not (laughs) thrown the Bible away, but that I am living the word in a sense. I am living like Jesus. Uh, This is part of the reason I don't say anything. I don't know that I want to put my emotional and spiritual energy into more words and more arguments. Instead, I want to put that toward the way I'm living my life. Maybe, maybe this is what Peter, the apostle Peter was getting at when he said, live such good lives that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they will praise God when God returns to visit us. So when people accuse me of that, I don't say anything. Um, instead, I, I, I want to, it really causes me in some ways to press more fully into how I am living my life. Um, I just had a thought, maybe we should do a podcast on the Bible in the future. Anyway, a couple more questions. Michael asks, how do you stay sane in the midst of a hectic job? Well, first, um, (laughs) let me make uh, an observation. You assume that I am sane. And um, it's fair to say the jury is still out on that one, my good friend. Uh, With that said, let me be the first to say, I don't know anyone who does this flawlessly. And uh, if they claim to do this flawlessly, like staying sane or keeping healthy, whatever it is, in the midst of a hectic world in which we live, I think they may be self-deceived and maybe need to do some work. But that's just, that's my uh, viewpoint on it. That's what I've experienced so far. Um, When it comes to staying sane though, or as sane as possible, we should say, I think having boundaries is essential. And I understand not everyone is able to draw their boundaries. That you, There's kids and there's jobs and there's bosses and there's commitments. Um, sometimes there's things that have to happen. The other times we have limited control. But I want to suggest we have far more control over our lives and our boundaries than we think. And here's one example of, of that. A friend of mine uh, works for a really large company and has a large team that he leads. And he told me years ago, Um, I was just basically talking about how I believe that email is the bane of human existence. And he said, you know what you need to do? You need to tell people what your email behavior is. Because if you don't tell people that, they will dictate your behavior to you. And and I didn't understand what he meant. And so he said to me, uh, I would encourage you to figure out how often do you need to be on email and send emails? And once you figure that out, let everyone know what your email behavior is. So if you say, I'm going to be on email 90 minutes a day between this time and this time, or I'm going to be on email 90 minutes a day, 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes at noon, 30 minutes in the afternoon, whatever it is, he said, you need to figure that out and then tell people. And they will actually respond to your behavior. Because the assumption is, is that everyone's on email all the time, always replying immediately. And so I did it. I figured out this is when I'm going to do email. And it worked wonders. It actually worked wonders for how well I communicate, for how quickly I communicate, for how sane I stay. And by the way, he and his big company with a big team, he did the same thing in his context. And I mentioned this first because I think when it comes to this idea of staying sane and busyness, um, we're often allowing ourselves to like serve everyone else's expectations. Often, by the way, expectations that are never stated. And I'm not sure that we have to do this all the time. And for me, in my context, what I'm learning 
every day and relearning every day is that my job first and foremost is to ruthlessly pursue greater health and wholeness. That's it. That is my chief job. And by the way, it's incredibly hard work and boundaries are a lifesaver. And so uh, other boundaries that I've uh, used over the, um, or that I put in place, I'll say it that way, um, is for example, like it's very rare that I work past 5.30 p.m. Um, I have meetings in the evening, usually on average of once every other week or twice a month. Um, but at 5.30, I'm done. And some people say, well, you know, there's, what, what about all the work you have to do? If you're in, uh, if you begin working at 8 a.m. and you work till 5.30 p.m., that is a long long amount of time. And so if you're working that entire time, I'm going to encourage you to really look at the way you're working, look at the way you're using your time, because it's possible. It's not that you don't have enough time. It's that you need to um, not take so many trips to the the coffee maker and you need to stop playing angry birds (laughs) on your breaks and just work hard. Uh, and so for me, I've really purposed to do that. And so it's very rare that I work after 5.30 and I always know there's going to be more work um, and that it will be waiting for me in the morning. I don't have work email on my phone um, because I realized a few years ago, I was like sneaking and checking it every once in a while. So I just took it off my phone. And right, here's the thing. Uh, nobody is, is worse off as far as I know, because I don't have email on my phone. Uh, another thing that I learned years ago is I'm more introverted. And so what that means is I wake up in the morning with a full battery, fully charged, ready to go. If you're extroverted, you might be the kind of person who wakes up with like a depleted battery and you need human interaction. For me, my battery drains throughout the day. So I just decided uh, I'm not going to meet with anyone before 1130 a.m., Uh, and what that allows me to do is do my best work in the morning. And so, uh, I start every day I can with silence and breathing and praying and reading and journaling and creating and writing and thinking all these things. The afternoon for me is the busy stuff. Now I know people who, if they had to go until 1130 without human interaction would wilt and die. So again, this is not, um, this is not prescriptive. This is me sharing some of the boundaries uh, that I've put up. Um, one of the things I have to do is I have to stay active. I have to work out. My therapist told me years ago, she said, y- your wiring and your makeup is, is, is demands that you stay physically active. If not, it's going to be really bad for your mental well-being. So I do. I, I do everything I can to stay active. Um, and I also, uh, I don't drag my family. My, I have a huge boundary around my family. I don't drag my family on a, onto any platform. My family did not sign up for this. Um, and what this allows is my home and my wife and my kids. Um, that's a sacred, sacred place for me. And one of the things I'm recognizing is that very few people, or I should say fewer and fewer, I'll say it that way, uh, have a place in our life that is untouched by the masses. Like people are putting all sorts of like family parenting detail on Instagram. Now, if that's your thing, fine, but just let me make this observation. Whatever you post for public consumption, you will never get back. Um, I've just decided there's there's a part of me that's not for public consumption. And it's interesting, years ago, 
um, I, I had written a couple of books and the publisher said to me after the first one, we need more of your personal life on social media because you will be more relatable to people if you do that. And I said, no, nope, my family's not for sale. Uh, and that whole part of my life is something that I get to enjoy uh, and no one else does. Like there's this beauty to that of just keeping it, keeping it really close. That's a big boundary for me. Um, the other thing is, is I just don't say yes to everything. And by the way, I hate saying no. Um, I have undiagnosed FOMO at some level. Um, but I, I've purposed not to say yes to everything. Cause if I did, I would be so crazy busy all the time that I wouldn't be present or getting anything done actually. And then the other thing is, is I have one day a week pretty much where I'm unavailable usually that's Fridays. Um, but I'm just not around and I'm not in touch and I'm trying more and more, by the way, to keep my phone somewhere else. Uh, if I'm going out with my family and everything else, just so I don't even have that distraction or that temptation. And then I think another thing would be friends. Um, when you ask about, uh, how do I stay sane? Um, it, it, I have a group of friends in my life, uh, which makes me one of the wealthiest individuals in the world. Um, these are people who challenge me, people who push me to be my best self, um, people who don't let me off the hook, um, but challenge me and invite me to do better because they love me. Those who, these are people who like know my most raw parts and my most gaping wounds. And, uh, they love me with all of that stuff included, um, and I think that that is, they're, they're always bringing me back to who I really am and who I am in my deepest core identity. So I know that that's quite a list, um, but maybe a, a, a helpful step would be to learn where, you're, where you are able to establish boundaries. Um, maybe, maybe you make a list like my, my life at work, my life at home, my life with my friends, whatever it is, make a list and then be able to say, I think this is where I could establish boundaries. And then write out some boundaries and then tell someone so they can keep you accountable to it. And you might just find you will have far more control of your life than you think. Uh, let's see. What are some of the best books you've read this year? Well, let me say this. I can't, uh, I can't get enough of books. I love books. Um, and I w always ask people who are good thinkers or people who talk about things I've never considered or those who are bringing up these really powerful ideas. I always ask them first and foremost, can you give me your reading list? Or what are the first five, 10, 12 books you would recommend to me? And then the other thing I would say is don't read just one genre of literature. Read as much as you can. Memoirs, biographies, nonfiction, whatever. Read as much as you can. Um, and then I think the most helpful thing for me is footnotes. Get to the footnotes. Find what authors are reading and buy those resources, buy those books. I do this all the time and it's so enlightening. You actually, if you have an author that you really like and you find out what they're reading, you almost feel like you're getting into their head and, and understanding how they're thinking and how they're understanding. Uh, so with that said, by the way, <clears throat> footnotes. If you remember anything, footnotes. It's gonna be in the footnotes. Here are, <laughs> here are several uh, books from the last few months from, from me. Um, in response to this question, in no particular order. Uh, one book, A New Harmony by John Philip Newell. By the way, if you're not familiar with John Philip Newell, you must become familiar with John Philip Newell. JPN, uh, John Philip Newell. He's an amazing writer, an amazing thinker who writes with a 
pastoral and compassionate and prophetic voice. Another book of his that I read, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago, um, that stood out to me among his others is uh, his book, The Rebirthing of God. And it's just wonderful. Uh, another book that I read this year that I highly recommend is Between the World and Me by Tahanasi Coates. Uh, it is a letter that he writes to his 15-year-old son and he lets us in on it. And for me, it was, uh, it was beautiful to hear a father speak to his son this way. It was powerful. Uh, and I think most of all, for me, it was really convicting. Uh, so I would definitely encourage you, Between the World and Me, Tahanasi Coates, uh, the book Educated by Tara Westover. It's a memoir about a girl who was reared off the grid um, as a part of like a almost cultish um, family. Um, they were connected loosely to the Mormon faith. Uh, but anyway, so she grows up in Idaho, way up off the grid, like in a gun stockpiling family. And she ends up going to Harvard and to Cambridge. And it is some of the best storytelling uh, and one of the best memoirs I've read in a long time. Uh, probably my favorite book um, wasn't published this year. I think it's actually several years old, but I just came onto it this year. It's called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, Jonathan Haidt. It's one of the most helpful books I've ever read that deals with the human mind, how it works, how we arrive at our convictions and our morals and our beliefs. And it is a challenge for everyone. I don't care if you fancy yourself right or left on this broad continuum uh, the Righteous Mind of Jonathan Haidt will challenge you. Uh, another book that was immensely helpful um, in the current day and age in which we're living is called Trump and a Post-Truth World. Uh, it's written by a guy named Ken Wilber. And it's a reflection on where we are in our, cultural, uh, our current cultural and political moment. Um, and this book uh, is a critique, I would say, of um, people who are lean left or a critique of liberals and it's written by a liberal, which is the best thing ever. When someone's critiquing their own tribe, it is really, really helpful. So that one's called uh, Trump in a Post-Truth World. There's the book I just finished, The Physics of God by Joseph Selby. Um, I'm a nerd at heart, by the way. <laughs> and this is an exploration of all kinds of mind-bending ideas and theories about how our universe works. And Selby, in describing this, argues for the existence of the divine at the heart of it all. And, oh, it is, if you're, into, if you're into science at all, even if you're not, actually, I would recommend that book. Um, there's a book called The House United by Alan Chambers, A-L-L-E-N, Alan Chambers. He writes uh, about what can be possible with regard to unity in our country. And by the way, if you are tired and beleaguered by all the hate and the division, uh, this is a worthwhile read. I think this book, offers a tremendous amount of hope and really practical ways that we can begin moving forward. It's called The House United by Alan Chambers. And I'm excited to announce, you heard it here first, Alan will be uh, a guest on a future episode of the Changing Faith podcast to talk about this book. Um, and then the other book I read, it was early this year, was called The Day the Revolution Began by N.T. Wright. Now, I'm always a sucker for N.T. Wright. Uh, and I always have been. Um, and this book raises... Uh, really profound questions and offers new or maybe we could say old perspectives on what Jesus's death on the cross means. And one thing I've been asked a lot about is um, 
penal substitutionary atonement, which basically is that Jesus died to satisfy God's wrath against human sin. So Jesus is punished, that's the penal side of things, in the place of sinners, that's the substitution side of things, in order to satisfy the justice of God and the legal demand uh, of God to punish sin. Um, so that's called the penal substitutionary theory of atonement is the fancy um, word of that. So this is what he interacts with. And by the way, he does it in a very, uh, um, a way that's easy to read. Um, and what's interesting is interacting with that, with that he points out um, that this is only one of several ways of understanding the meaning of Jesus's death. And by no means is this the oldest way of understanding Jesus's death. And as a matter of fact, it's only several hundred years old. Um, and it, it gives such helpful perspective on this. Uh, and who knows? Maybe we'll have another uh, podcast on atonement theories. <laughs> that does not sound exciting at all. As I say that, I'm thinking to myself, well, uh, anyway. Uh, okay. And then one last question. And this one made me laugh. Uh, it was brilliant. Um, it was from our last, it was a reflection on the last podcast. And it said this, did your wife listen to the last podcast. <laughs> so if you listen to the last podcast, you understand that question from Matt. Did your wife listen to the last podcast? And the answer is yes, she did. And uh, all I'll say about that is that she smiled and was a bit embarrassed, but ultimately she liked hearing me gush about her. <laughs> so anyway, thank you again for sending in your questions. It is so much fun to interact with them uh, and just think through, think out loud with you. What are some ways and some perspectives and some insights we can bring to these questions? So let me say again, thank you for joining with us. I cannot wait to be with you on our next episode. But with that said, as always, much love and peace be with you. <laughs>